John Blanchard stood. He straightened his army uniform and he surveyed the crowd that had gathered there at Grand Central Station. He was looking for a woman, a woman whose heart he knew, but whose face he didn't. He was looking for the woman with the rose. His interest in her began over a year earlier, while on leave he was in a library and finding a book of poetry, he found himself more intrigued not with the words printed on the book, but with the, the notes scribbled in the margin. There was something thoughtful, soulful, insightful, something soft and feminine and really beautiful about the words that were penciled there. He turned to the front of the book and he discovered the previous owner's name, Miss Hollis Maynell. With time and effort, he found her address and he wrote to her, inviting her to correspond. Soon, he was shipped overseas to serve in the war. But over the next year or so, they continued to write to each other. Each letter was like a seed falling on fertile ground. Romance was budding. John Blanchard requested a photo of Hollis Maynell and she wrote back saying no and that it shouldn't matter what she looked like. He should love her because of who she was inside. Well, the day finally came for him to return from Europe. They scheduled their first meeting, 7 p.m., Grand Central Station. And here he stood, waiting for her. She said, you will recognize me because I will be wearing a rose on my lapel. And so, John Blanchard stood, waiting, looking for the woman with the rose. The woman whose heart he knew, but whose face he didn't. I'm going to let John Blanchard describe what happened next. A young woman was coming toward me. Her figure, long and slim, her blonde hair lay back in curls from her delicate ears. Her eyes were blue as flowers. Her lips and chin had a gentle firmness. And in her pale green suit, she looked like springtime come alive. I started toward her, entirely forgetting to notice that she was not wearing a rose. As I moved, a small provocative smile curved her lips. Going my way, sailor, she murmured. Almost uncontrollably, I made one step closer to, to her and then I saw Miss Hollis Maynell. 
She was standing almost directly behind the girl, a woman well past 40. She had graying hair tucked under a worn hat. She was more than plump. Her thick ankled feet thrust into low-heeled shoes. The girl in the green suit was walking quickly away. I felt as though I was split in two. So keen was my desire to follow her, and yet so deep was my longing for the woman whose spirit had truly companioned me and upheld my own. And there she stood. Her pale, plum face was gentle and sensible. Her grey eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle. I did not hesitate. My finger gripped the small, worn, blue leather copy of the book that was to identify me to her. This would not be love, but it would be something precious, something perhaps even better than love, a friendship for which I had been and must ever be grateful. I squared my shoulders and saluted, held out the book to the woman, even though while I spoke, I felt choked by the bitterness of my disappointment. I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard, and you must be Miss Maynell. I'm so glad to meet you. May I take you to dinner? The woman's face broadened into a tolerant smile. I don't know what this is about, son, she answered. But the young lady in the green suit who just went by, she begged me to wear this rose on my coat. She said, if you were to ask me out to dinner, I should go and tell you, that she is waiting for you in the big restaurant across the street. She said it was some kind of test. It's not hard to admire Miss Maynell's wisdom, is it? You know, there's, there's something about the way that we treat others that tells them who we are. Jesus said, there's a way to tell who people are, who they belong to. There's a certain sign, if you like, that accompanies those who follow Christ. It's like a badge or a trademark. We might call it the sign of the saved. What is it? What's the sign of the saved? What's the trademark of a Christian? In the final part, of Jesus' final sermon recorded in Matthew, he gives us an answer to what seems to be a difficult question. And the answer may surprise you. The sign of the saved, well, it's, it's not the amount of sermons preached. It's not someone's willingness to go to a foreign land and as a missionary and to preach and to convert. It's not the amount of miracles performed. That's not the sign of the same. It's not their diet. The sign of the saved isn't even the Sabbath. And stay with me, because we know 
that the Sabbath will play a part in end time events. But according to Jesus, the sign of the saved is people's love for others, especially those that are forgotten and looked over. The sign of the saved is their love for the least. Those who are saved, they see the people with the roses. They have a heart like Jesus and they go to the people with the roses. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew is found in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Just turn to someone beside you who may have a Bible and ask them to share with you. Matthew chapter 25. In the previous chapter, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus has just finished describing the signs that accompany the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. He spoke there in Matthew chapter 24 about there being signs in the political world, uh, signs in the natural world, signs in the social world, and then signs in the religious world. Now, in Matthew 25, Jesus gives three parables that describe the condition of God's people just before his return. So Matthew 24 is dealing with the world, the political, religious, social, uh, natural world. Matthew chapter 25 is dealing with those people who claim to be the followers of Jesus. And here... He gives three parables. There's the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. There's the parable of the the talents. And then there's the parable of the sheep and the goats. In the next chapter, Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is arrested. So our passage here, this chapter in Matthew chapter 25, this passage is the last parable that Jesus taught just before his arrest. And we're going to start in verse 31. It's a long passage, so just bear with me. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the shepherd, the sheep, excuse me, on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Verse 41, then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food, I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. 
naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Have you ever thought that it's impossible to please God? What Jesus gives us here is actually quite simple. It's quite manageable. And there are three lessons today that I want to share with you from this passage that describe the saved. Three signs that describe the saved. The first one in talking about the saved, in Matthew chapter 25 here, their work is simple. Their work is simple. You know, Jesus said, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was sick, and you visited me. Jesus didn't say, I was hungry, and you built me a restaurant. Jesus doesn't say, I was thirsty and you dug me a well. He doesn't say, I was sick and you healed me. He doesn't even say, I was in jail and you liberated me. That's not what he says. See, those put on the right hand of God will be those who gave food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, warmth to the lonely, comfort to the sick, clothing to the naked and Friendship to the imprisoned. You know, often we think God is hard to please. And I think that's because we are hard to please. Let's be honest. Max Licardo, that uh, Christian author, tells a story of when he was in college. And every couple of weekends he would visit home and He would take a girl home with him, a girl that he met at college that he thought could be his wife. So he'd take this girl home so that she could meet his parents and his his mum wouldn't like her and he'd take her back. He'd find another girl and he thought she might be the one and he'd take her home and his mum wouldn't like her and he'd take her back. And This went on over a few semesters He'd fight it up the girl and he'd take her home and again his mum wouldn't like her, he'd take her back. Eventually he found this girl and he knew his mum would love her because she reminded him of his mother. She sounded a bit like his mum, she walked like his mum, she had the same sort of hairstyle as his mum. So he thought, she's fine and he brought her home. His dad didn't like her. He had to take her back. You know, God is not hard to please. You know, we make it hard with all our, our regulations and our limitations. But God here is saying, I can tell if you love me by the way that you treat others. It's actually quite simple. 
It's just regular people like you and me just doing good things, taking care of each other, loving each other. Number two, second lesson in describing the saved here, their work is significant. Their work is significant. Why is it significant? Because in verse 40, turn with me back to verse 40, Jesus said, you did it to me. You did it to me. You know, one of the the greatest miracles of the Bible is that God can live and dwell in sinful humanity. The holy God of the universe takes up residence in you and in me. That to me is one of the greatest miracles of the Bible. Paul said, you are the temple of God. See, God doesn't live in a a nice chapel or on a mountain far away that you have to climb to to get to. But he dwells in you. Think about that. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, your hair is matted if you've got hair. Your belly's bloated. If you're like me, you've probably got breath that can kill a dog. And look in the mirror and say, God lives in me. God takes up residence in you. See, you are valuable to God, not because of who you are, but because of whose you are. You've been created by God in His image. If you want to make an author mad, criticize his book. If you want to make a painter mad, defame his painting. If you want to make a musician mad, mock his music. If you want to make God mad, disregard his creation, his church, his children. Turn your back on those who are hurting, who are hungry, who are thirsty. Here, in this passage, interesting, it's interesting that Jesus identifies himself with the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and those in prison. See, in verse 40, Jesus said, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. See, Jesus is saying the people that are his family, the people that are his brothers and sisters, are those people that are doing it tough. It's those people who are hungry, who are thirsty, who are naked, who are sick, who are in prison. Jesus is saying, that's my brethren, that's my family. He's saying to us, the people in your community the homeless, the drug addicts, those that have maybe ruined their lives because of the choices and the decisions that they've made, they are my brethren. They're the people that Jesus says I'm close to. Those people in prison, they belong to me. 
those people that think and believe different to you, that's my child as well. They're mine. Jesus lives in the forgotten. He takes up residence in the ignored. He makes his mansion among the ill. And everyone is valuable because Jesus died for them. And the work of the saved here is significant because they recognize God in all those people. See, what makes you valuable isn't your job or your money, your education, your failures, your successes. What makes you valuable is that God lives and dwells in you and that he gave his life for you and for me. In Matthew chapter 8, earlier in in Matthew's uh, gospel, there's a story of a leper who came to Jesus for healing. And I imagine that this man, maybe before he got leprosy, he may have been a family man. He may have been a husband. He may have had a wife and maybe he had some children. And I wonder if he, he was working really hard to provide for the needs of his family. And I wonder if one day he hurt his hand and it wasn't cleaned properly and it started to get sore. And I wonder if just because he hadn't cared for it or or, or whatever, maybe it turned to leprosy. And I wonder if one day he, he said to his wife, this thing on my hand, it's not healing. And she probably said, well, you should go to the priest. Show the priest. And perhaps go into the priest, and, and, and the priest, having seen it, he was now diagnosed with leprosy and as a sinner and cast out from the people of God, cursed, forced now to leave his family and and everyone that he knew and loved, cursed by God, feeling anyway as though he was cursed by God, judged, and having to now live outside of God's covenant-keeping people, living somewhere with other people, lepers and sinners. And I wonder if one day he heard the story of Jesus and faith in his heart started to grow. And this man dared to leave his fortress of solitude and make his way to where the people were. And on the way to Jesus, having to shout out, unclean! Because that's what he had to do. And I imagine that as he made his way to Jesus, shouting out, unclean, that the people would depart. They would part like the Red Sea. And there coming face to face with Jesus, Jesus says, What do you want me to do for you? And he says, 
I want to be healed. And Jesus does something that no Jew should do. He reaches out and he touches him. In the book of Matthew, Jesus heals people without touching them. He speaks and people are healed and they're nowhere near him. He didn't have to touch the man. And yet Jesus reaches out and he touches the man to instill value back into him, to show him that he is significant. You know, in the same way, God reached out to us. We were sinners, the Bible says. The Bible says that we uh, rebelled against God, that we were running from God. We weren't even running to Him. And yet Jesus came in search of us. God came looking for us. And He reaches out and He touches us, each one of us, and He instills back into us value and worth and significance and he says you are my child you have been created in my image and he restores that back in us the people that Jesus identifies here with are those who are doing it tough those who are going through a hard time and The question, we have to ask this question, are you going through a hard time? We all are. I don't have a perfect life. I don't have a perfect family. I've got problems. I've got issues. And Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm with you. Whatever you're going through, whatever challenge you're facing, whatever trial you're enduring, the mountain may seem too high for you. Maybe the valley is too dark and too deep, Jesus says, I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You may be doing it tough at the moment. And Jesus says, you are my child. Maybe you're running from him. He's running beside you. He's right there. Whatever you're going through, he's with you. He hasn't left you. In describing the saved here, there are three lessons. The first, do you remember their work is, anyone remember what the first S was? Simple. Ah, very good. A bit like me, very simple. Number two, their work is significant. Thank you. And finally, number three, their work is sincere. In describing the saved, Jesus said their work is simple, their work is significant, and their work is sincere. Why? Well, Jesus, when he speaks to them and tells them, you did all this, they respond in verse 37, Lord, uh, when? When did we do this? Have you noticed 
that people who don't do much talk a lot about the little that they do and they're proud of it. And the sincere workers don't actually think that they have ever done enough. The saved are humble and quiet about what they do. They don't boast. They're just Christians doing what Christians do. Reflecting Jesus, seeing Jesus in others and loving them. When I was studying at college, at Avondale College, um, I found this bench, I was living on campus and uh, just behind the dormitory that I was living there was this bench and every morning the sun would shine on this bench and so I would sit there in the morning and I would do some study and some devotions and reading and it was just a beautiful place, it was quiet, um, I could sit there, there was no one around, I wouldn't be disturbed, I could hear the birds singing, I was in nature it was warm, it was beautiful, and I'd sit there and I'd read my Bible and I'd do some study. It was a really nice spot. And I remember this one morning sitting there and I was studying uh, and I was doing Greek. I was reading the Greek and studying the Greek because we, we had to do Greek and Hebrew uh, when you do theology. And I'm reading the Greek and I'm sitting there reading the Bible in the original language in the Greek and there was a noise that was actually, it was, it was quite disturbing. It was annoying. There was someone was trying to start their car and they couldn't start their car. The battery had gone flat. And so there was this person trying to start the car and they kept turning the key and pressing the, the, the accelerator and, and nothing would happen. It was just making a lot of noise and the car wouldn't start. And it was really annoying because instead of now sitting there reading my Bible in this peaceful nature setting, listening to the birds, I'm hearing this car and it's, it's really bothering me. And so I look over and I notice who it is and it's, it's another student, it's someone from college that I knew and he was one of the really popular guys at college and I looked over and I saw him and I thought, oh, sucked in. I met him earlier, I met him a while ago, and, and, and I introduced myself to him, this is, you know, right in what, like the first week of college, and I introduced myself, and, and I thought, hey, you know, we could be friends, and he totally ignored me, and we lived in the same building, in the same dormitory, and, you know, we would see each other, we would go to the same cafeteria, we would see each other every day, and he never, ever spoke to me, apparently, and I know this may come as a shock to you, I was not part of the popular good-looking group. I know to look at me now, you would not expect that. I am quite a handsome man. Um, but back then, in my 20s, I was not part of the cool, popular, good-looking group. And so, obviously, he wouldn't speak to me. So when I saw him, and I knew who it was, I thought to myself, ah, you deserve that. And I actually felt quite good about myself and I went back to reading my Bible in the Greek. And as I'm reading the Bible there in the Greek, suddenly I felt a voice kind of come to me. I, was, I felt this, you know, I was having this kind of dialogue in my head. Um, you know, it was as though the Spirit or, or you know, God was speaking to me. And, and it was though God, God said to me, um, if that was me over there, would you help? And in my mind I said... I said, Lord, if that was you, 
I would be the first over there to help, of course I would. And then the words came back, but it is me. And I sat there looking at the Bible, reading the Greek, feeling convicted that I had to do something. And it was a real chore. I had to close my Bible. I had to get up from where I was. And I went over to him and it was about 50 meters. It was so annoying. I said to him, hey, um, I've got some jumper leads in the car. I can help you out. Do you, do, you want, do you want a hand? And he said, yeah, that would be great. So I went to the car and I got in the car and I started the car and drove it over there and connected up the cords and his car started like that. He's like, thanks, mate. He gave me a high five. He jumped in his car and he drove off. And I got in my car. I parked my car. I went back to sitting down, reading my Bible in the original Greek, feeling good about myself and thinking to myself, now I'm in with a cool, popular, good-looking group. I was not sincere. My motives were not pure. You know, I saw him the next day and I'm thinking, oh, he's going to see me and wow, we're going to be friends and we're going to high five each other. You know what happened? He continued to ignore me. That's what happened. You know, these people here that are saved, what they're doing is sincere. There's another group of people in Matthew 7. Let's quickly turn there. Matthew chapter 7, just go back a little. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. There's a group of people here, and it says Jesus here is speaking. This comes from the Sermon on the Mount, and this is towards the end. Jesus says, uh, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Are these Christians? They are Christians because they're claiming to do things in the name of Jesus. So they are claiming to be Christian anyway. And Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, these people here are doing good things, but their motives are wrong. The things that they're doing don't come from a heart of appreciation or a heart of love. They don't do it because they recognize and they understand that Jesus is in everyone else. They don't do it because they, they love Jesus. They do it in order to be saved. And these people sadly are lost. In Desire of Ages, and I'm almost done, Desire of Ages, page 440 and 441, Ellen White writes something which is very powerful. The first time I read it, I thought I'd misread it. I actually had to read it a few times in order to make sure that I'd read it correctly. Listen to what she says there, talking about conflict between people. She says, 
If one of these little ones shall be overcome and commit a wrong against you, then it is your work to seek his restoration. Do not wait for him to make the first effort for reconciliation. Did you hear that? Did you get that? Ellen White's saying that if, if you've had a conflict with something, with someone, and someone has committed a wrong against you, you are the innocent party, okay? That's what she's saying. If someone's done something wrong to you, if someone has hurt you, you're the innocent party. Whose work is it to seek for reconciliation or restoration? It's yours. She says, it's your work to seek his restoration. Do not wait for them to make the first effort for reconciliation. You know, often when someone hurts us, we love to sit on our throne high and mighty and we love to sit there as though we are divine and wait for them to come groveling to us so that we can say, I forgive you. But she says that's not how it's supposed to be. And that's not what Jesus modeled. If someone has hurt you, you go and make it right with that person. Seek that person. She goes on, do not put him or her to shame by exposing his fault to others, nor bring dishonor upon Christ by making public the sin or error of one who bears his name. Often the truth must be plainly spoken to the erring. He must be led to see his error that he may reform, but you are not to judge or condemn. Make no effort or attempt, sorry, make no attempt at self-justification. Let all your effort be for his recovery. We are not to make it a matter of comment and criticism among ourselves. Uh, She goes on, she actually says that we're to follow what Jesus says in Matthew 18, to go to them and then go to the the elders and so forth. And then she says, um, while we seek to correct the errors of a brother, the Spirit of Christ will lead us to shield him as far as possible from the criticism of even his own brethren and how much more from the censure of the unbelieving world. And in Steps to Christ, one final quote, she says, The brother that you have wounded is the property of God and in injuring him, you sinned against his creator and redeemer. See, we are united to each other. What I do to you, what I do, what I do myself affects other people. And the way I treat you is the way that I will treat Jesus. And if I don't love you, and if I don't take care of you, then I'm not loving Jesus. And the only way that we can show this kind of love that Jesus is talking about, that Ellen White writes about, the only way we can show this kind of love to others is if we have first experienced God's love for us. 
because love awakens love. That's the only way. You know, of all the teachings of Jesus, this is probably the one we like the least. Why didn't he say the sign of the saved was the amount of sermons they preached? I would be safe. Man, I've preached hundreds of sermons. Why didn't he say the signs of the saved is their theology? I think my theology is okay. Why didn't he say the sign of the saved is their diet? You know, once I was a vegan. I'm not a vegan anymore. I like cheese. I'm sorry. Um, I was a vegan once. I was on the translation diet. I was ready for heaven. Why didn't he say the sign of the saved is their diet? Why didn't he say the sign of the saved is the way that they keep the Sabbath? And as I said, the Sabbath is important. I'm not doing saying we know the Sabbath will play an important part in end time events. But that's not what he said in Matthew 25. He reminds us that those who know him are the ones that see him in others. To see Jesus is to take the time to get to know people that you otherwise wouldn't talk to. To see Jesus, to know Jesus, is to invite someone home for lunch who, you may, who may have come to church for the first time. You know, Jesus said, what good is it to you if you love those who are easy to love. John Blanchard and Hollis Maynell were married. And they had many years and many children together. And I wonder what John would have missed out on if he didn't see the woman with the rose. And I wonder what we miss out on when we don't see the people with the roses. God bless you.